uncovering the most amazing stories from the most talented innovators and creatives in marketing, tech, and digital. This is the Wonderful People Podcast. So, Phil, one thing I don't know about you, I know about the Wonderful Babs, and I know um, you you would uh, not be half the man you were without her. <laughs> probably, probably, that's probably being kind. But how long have you been together, and how long have you been married? Oh, bloody hell, Dan. Um, a long time. So I was, when I came to London, which is when I met Babs, from, from the world's greatest city, Manchester, uh, that was 1973. And wow. that's, when I met, that's when I met Babs. And then we got married in 1975. Wow. In, those, in those days, you didn't really have these 10-year relationships before you got married. It was like, if you weren't married in two years, it was... You know, it wasn't going to happen. Right. So, 1975. So, I've, um, I'm just trying to think what that is. How many so years? That is 46 years. 46. Blimey. Yeah. Oh, that's so, impressive. So, our next one will be 47, which was the, the number of the door that I lived on at, in Manchester, 47 Buttermere Drive. <laughs> <laughs> Where it all began. Happy memories. So, how about you, Dan? Not quite 46. I've been married 17 years. Wow. Uh, yeah, 17 years. And uh, you know, do you know what? Actually, not dissimilar to what you've just said. When, when Claire and I got married, we were together only a few months before we got engaged. Basically, I worked out I was onto a good thing. And if I didn't marry <laughs> her, she, someone much more dashing and handsome and richer would have picked her up. So I had to marry her quickly. So... Yeah, but loyalty is a big thing, isn't it? I know that's what we want to talk about today. But um, yeah, no, amazing. Yeah. 17 years. Good, good for you. Well, you look, you're looking really good on it, Dan. That's oh, all I can say. Thank you, mate. Appreciate that. <laughs> so one of the things we want to talk about today as well is that whole thing about loyalty, isn't it? It's that sense of, particularly like in sport, you know, there's not as much loyalty anymore, is there? I mean, what do you think? And what's, what are your thoughts that you've followed different sports over the years, particularly football? Yeah, well, well, as you know, I'm a, me a mink, so I've I tend to have supported one team. But I think that loyalty, when you look at when a team loses, or they have a, a run where they lose two or three matches, it's amazing how quickly the press get at them and the fans get at them, and they want to change the manager. And when my team, Manchester United, when they went through looking for a new manager to replace the legend, they tried David Moyes. Right. And the pressure was on him like, immediately. So he'd gone from being so successful at a club like Everton and done brilliantly with them, which made him a good manager. But all of a sudden he was a bad manager because he didn't do it within that first short period. And, right. and, he, and he left with his tail between his legs, really, which was a shame. And um, yesterday, I was watching his team now, West Ham, thrash Liverpool. Really. They, were, they were all over Liverpool. And that is what a really brilliant Liverpool team that are not used to losing. I think yesterday was the first game they'd lost in many, many months. Well, and you look at the same guy who was a good manager and became a bad manager and then he's now a good manager. He never, ever became a bad manager. It's just that loyalty thing. And I think West Ham, they deserve success. And it'd be really lovely if they do it under a manager that they've stuck with and they, they're supporting. So it is a, it is a hard one because the clubs are under pressure to, to get results. But I think sometimes just sticking with someone and giving them that a bit more time and certainly in the case of Alex Ferguson, it was four years before he won anything when he joined Man United. Was it that and long, was it? Four years? It was four years. And wow. it, was the, it was an FA Cup win that actually turned that around. But again, if he'd have been under the same pressure that Ole Gunnar Solskjaer or whoever is under now and been let go, I think what would have been lost because he turned into one of the greatest managers of all time. Absolutely. It took four years to actually win anything. And I think loyalty is very important. How about you, mate? 
Yeah, no, agreed. And I, I think, you know, there is obviously the pressures of the game and, and everything that needs to go with it. But we live in such a short-term society, don't we? We live in such a short-term thinking. You know, every, results have got to be instant. Change has got to be instant. And I think one thing I'm going to segue now about loyalty is you mentioned earlier on that um, Design Podge is in its 26th year. It is this year. Uh, I mean, wow. So we've had COP26 and we've had Design Podge 26. You know, I know which one was more significant for me. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> I'll let the audience, uh, you know, draw their own conclusions. But tell us about, so, okay, Design Podge 26. Tell us about 26 years of doing Podge. I mean, that, that well, was, yeah. It actually, it's like a lot of good things. It started accidentally, really. It was more back in 1984. Uh, we'd been through a torrid time. We'd had like a recession. It was not good. And a lot of design agencies at the time, it was before digital, a lot of design agencies had struggled and they'd found it really difficult. Quite, quite a lot of them had gone bust, like big design agencies, Michael Peters, Smith and Milton, Rodney Fitch, you know, the, the list is endless. And, wow. and one thing that I realized is because I, at the time, ran a tight business, that I worked with all of them. And they themselves never, ever met each other. They, they only saw each other at awards ceremonies where they were competing with each other. And I, I just thought it'd be nice to get some of the owners together for a lunch so that they can talk to each other. I'll organise it. I'll choose the venue. I'll pay for it. And then bill them for their portion, whatever it cost. And that, I gave it a name. I called it Podge. And I'd call it podged simply because we were going to be eating a lot, drinking a lot and putting on a podge. And that, it was nothing more ambitious than a one-off lunch. And 26 years later, it's, it's just as valuable. But now a lot of those older people, the ones who were sat at that original lunch, some of them are no longer with us. Wow. And some of them are with us, but are retired. And there's a whole new bevy of people that have just come through and, and they value it. They just really love being able to do something once a year where they get no bullshit. They talk to people who are in the same boat as they're in. They've got the same issues with, with staff, with property, uh, with skill sets that they don't have, you know. And it's just nice to be part of it. So, and the, the loyalty factor, funnily enough, we've had two weddings from the podge about 20, in, in the 26 years. They, there might have been many more romances. <laughs> we actually just had two weddings simply from the seating plan, just when, you, when you're working out who will get on with who. And, uh, and that's quite nice. So there are four uh, designers in this world that are together with, together. with what I think now is five children. Wow. Uh, be, because they just sat near each other at a podge lunch. So. Uh, that's brilliant. I love that. And uh, yeah, there's so much loyalty in the industry towards Podge and, and vice versa. Just one quick thing before you announce our guest, Sports Podge a few weeks ago, incredible event, incredible theme. But Ben Ryan. Wow. Wow. Was, well, every year we, we never announce anybody that's going to speak. They're always someone that gets up from the room, from one of the tables, and then they get up and do works of magic. And we've been doing that now for quite a lot of years. But I think Ben Ryan, his story about taking Fiji to winning gold and how he did it, it was just the most incredible story I've ever heard. It was, it was incredible. And, and the even better news, which I haven't shared with you yet, Dan, is that uh, I approached him and asked whether he would come and do one of these podcasts with you and I, and he has said yes in the new year. And I know you're a massive rugby fan, so Ben, watch out for Ben Ryan's interview. That will be great. Uh, amazing. That's absolutely brilliant. And we've also got an incredible guest today. So Ben Ryan, one for the future, and today's amazing guest. Would you introduce, please, Phil? I certainly will. Okay, today's guest is recognised as one of the English football's most experienced executives. Having spent almost a quarter of a decade in football administration at all levels of the game, he's dynamic, brave, and quite simply, is someone who has risen to the challenge time and time again and succeeded. 
a commercial marketer at heart who has used his skills to create incredible opportunities for the clubs he has served and to drive success. So we're delighted to welcome the Chief Exec and Deputy Chairman of Brighton and Hove Albion, the man who delivered his promise and took them into the Premier League, and looking forward to unpacking his career story and finding out what we can expect that season and beyond. I give you Paul Barber. Thanks, Phil. Very nice to be here. Welcome, Paul. Welcome. And uh, what a great bio. But then before the recording, you know, we're having a little bit of chat and then we get into the Spurs Arsenal scenario <laughs> straight away. Let's not go there now. Let's, let's kick off with question one. So, Paul, if you were to be stuck in the lift with someone, who would it be and why? Well, that's an easy, easy one for me, Dan. I, I would want to be in a lift with someone that could get me out of there really. Quickly. <laughs> so they'd have to be an engineer of some kind. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I've got a fear of being in confined spaces. And um, so for me, getting stuck in a lift, first of all, I'd avoid lifts wherever I can. And secondly, if I did get stuck in, in one, I'd need to be got out of there fast. So that's my uh, that's my my best scenario. Someone who's an engineer. <laughs> Do you know what? And all the people we've asked, no one's actually said that, which is possibly the, the right answer, right? If you're stuck in a lift, do you want to get out of the lift? Just, Everyone just, else just said, yeah, just get me out of the lift. Everyone else is a deep and meaningful. And you've just said, let's get me out of there. I like that. <laughs> I, there think, we go. I think that could be a, a sort of a, the tone I set for the entire interview. You know, <laughs> deep and meaningful out of me, unfortunately. So. <laughs> just wait for you to get out of here. Okay. Well, look, we, we know you've obviously achieved an incredible amount at the moment with what you're doing, but taking a step back, you've held some top jobs in banking, advertising, sport, you know, quite a diverse mix. So can you just tell us a little bit about your, the young you and your sort of career ambitions back then and how's the journey been well you know first of all I suppose like a lot of young kids I wanted to, to be a footballer I wasn't talented enough um, uh, to be one and I suppose the second career option was was to be a PE teacher and I was fortunate enough to have a a number of uh, PE teachers over the years that were quite inspirational and, and I thought well if I can't if I can't be what I want to be uh, as a footballer then maybe I could spend most of my life in a tracksuit. And then one day, one of those inspirational PE teachers sat me down and said, listen, you don't want to do this. There's, there's no money in this. There's a lot of hassle. It's going to get harder. And one day, you know, the government are going to sell off all the playing fields and there won't be any jobs for PE teachers. So try and find something else. And at that point, I, I've got to admit, I was fairly, I was fairly despondent because I didn't really know what I wanted to do. And, um, you know, I was lucky enough to, to, to sort of have a, an interest in, in, in business, not, not serious business, but I, as a kid, I was quite entrepreneurial. I set up a couple of car washing businesses and a few other little bits and pieces, like a lot of London lads to, to earn some, some money. Um, and, um, you know, I was also fortunate that I had some teachers that believed in me from a, from a public speaking point of view and a communications point of view. And, and I was lucky enough to be sort of fairly, fairly decent at doing stuff like that. And slowly but surely, I kind of fell into sort of marketing and communications type vocational education, um, which which set me on the path to, to to where I am today. But there was, a, there was because one of the things I've got written down here, you were at Ogilvy and Mather. Yeah. You know, so you've, you've been big business side, you've been as well as obviously the sports side. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, well, I, I studied marketing and, and um, was fortunate enough to, to get some, some early breaks with some, some big companies. So I started at Royal Insurance, um, who are now Royal and Sun Alliance, and, and um, moved on to what was then Abbey National, which is now Santander, uh, and then eventually uh, ended up working at Barclays, where I, I went on to the retail board um, at Barclays Bank. And, you know, all of those experiences sort of gave me um, fantastic exposure to big brands, to big advertising and marketing campaigns, um, a lot of public relations work. And then eventually I was very fortunate enough to, to be chief executive of Ogilvy in, in, in Europe and, and looked after a number of their offices right the way across the continent. And, you know, the great thing about Ogilvy is it's just one of the best names in, in, in sort of global advertising and communications and PR, uh, part of the WPP group, learned a lot from, from the, the group and people like Martin Sorrell, who are amazing uh, business people and built an incredible uh, operation there. Um, and, uh, you know, that also gave me exposure to a lot of global brands and working internationally and, and you know, just generally lifting my head away from the UK and, and seeing the opportunities out there. But my heart, frankly, has always been in football. And, you know, someone once told me that if you can 
if you can marry your heart and your head in the same place, then you're probably going to have a good life and a good career. And for me, my head and my heart really was in football. And the FA um, gave me a break um, at the back end of 1996 to work on their bid to stage the 2006 World Cup. And they brought together a small uh, group of business people to advise them on how to go about bidding for that World Cup competition. We didn't win it. But again, it gave me exposure to professional football, to the FA, to, to various people across the game. And eventually, in a fairly short period of time after that, I ended up as the FA's first ever marketing director. And for me, that was the, 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 the best break in, in my life, you know, to be able to, again, marry my heart with my head and market the game that I'd loved all my life. It wasn't ever going to be as good as playing. It wasn't ever going to be as good, perhaps, as, as, as sort of being out there in, in, in front of uh, the, the the crowd but actually being behind the scenes and and helping to market uh, the sport was was really special and and I'm I'll be forever grateful to the FA for that opportunity oh well I'm gonna jump in Dan on this uh, just because I didn't realize you'd been you were at the FA in 96 yeah that was as a, an advisor to to the to the bid for the 2006 World Cup so that was my first break with them yeah well well I actually did the logo Ah, there you go. I didn't know that, Phil. Wow, that's that's amazing. And, uh, that was a great logo, that was. Uh, it was fantastic. And I just remember uh, pitching with my best mate, Trevor Chambers. Yeah. The two of us pitching in Lancaster Gate to yep. a, a group of people. And I'm now wondering if you were one of them. I think I probably was. I remember I remember the presentation and we would have had Alec McGiven, who was the... the Alec, director. yeah. Yeah. Hazel, Hazel Rosco. Yeah. Uh, and David Davis and and a, and a few of the the guys there. So yeah, that I would have almost certainly been in the room that day. I think. Well, I I actually didn't realise that, but in 1996 I pitched to you the logo, and there were about eight companies pitching okay. different ideas. An age, Phil. You haven't aged. And what was brilliant? They they took a picture which you would have been aware of outside 10 Downing Street with Tom Finney, Bobby Charlton. Yeah, holding up Dan the all holding up our logo yeah and it was just like the best feeling ever Brilliant. and and then sad oh and i had a german designer working on it wow and it, and it was germany that actually ended up winning the bid so i was i was really peed off but he was really happy so fantastic <laughs> oh, they were good days and, and you know lancaster gate was a great experience and then um adam crozier who at that time was the chief executive of saatchi and saatchi eventually as part of our little group um and eventually adam became the chief executive of the fa and it was adam that persuaded me to to join the fa full time and um you know i loved working in lancaster gate you know at that time it was sort of revered as the home of english football as you know and you know, I can remember walking in there for the first time and seeing that the real FA Cup sitting in, in the trophy room and, uh, you know, growing up as a kid, uh, as a Spurs fan, winning the FA Cup in 81 and 82 were my earliest memories of going to Wembley and, and, and that competition. Um, so to be part of that was very special. Um, and then we moved to Soho Square, which was right into the heart of Adland, not surprisingly, with, with Adam as chief executive. And, you know, our, our objective, my objective, our, my brief at that time was to, to try and make the FA more transparent, uh, the game more accessible, the game more attractive to, to people who um, wanted to participate, whether that was playing or spectating or officiating or becoming a physio or becoming uh, whatever support role the game needed uh, and it was just a brilliant a brilliant job to be marketing director of the English FA was just special and um, you know it was uh, it was a job that led to going to Euros in 2000 with Kevin Keegan's squad and then to Japan and Korea in 2002 with Svenjorn Eriksson's squad um, you know really special times to look back on. And uh, you set up the FA Partners sponsorship program with them. Tell, tell us a bit about that. And how that yeah, well, when I, when I first joined the FA, you know, the commercial director at the time was a, was a great character. I think, you know, Phil called, called Phil Carling um, and Phil had joined the FA from Arsenal, um, which was his, his club. And Phil had, had done a fantastic job in raising revenues for the FA um, through the two main assets that they have, which is the England team and the FA Cup. Um, and what he had done was had created title sponsorships for those two, two assets. And by then, I'd been very heavily influenced by the Champions League and the way UEFA had set the sponsorship programme up for that. 
and to a lesser extent by FIFA and what they've done with the World Cup, which was really not to allow any one brand to own their competition, but to create a family of, of, of sponsors, a, a partnership um, of sponsors. And each of them had an equal right to, to the key properties. And, and I wanted to try and do that for the FA. And so that meant taking the title rights away from AXA, the French insurance company that had the FA Cup at the time, and the uh, naming rights to the England team from, from Nationwide Building Society. And then we created a, a five partner program where the partners had to commit to the bottom grassroots level of the game as much as they committed to the top level. That was the hook for me. Uh, and that included women's football, which, you know, 20, 21 years ago, which is when we're talking about, was not such a, a hot property as it is now in terms of commercial um, attraction. Um, it meant youth football, like the FA Youth Cup. It meant sort of semi-pro football, like the FA Vars and the FA Trophy. Um, we even had the, the FA Pub Cup in those days, right the way down to proper grassroots, uh, which um, we, we eventually uh, were able to sell in as well. So we created a programme which included McDonald's, included Pepsi, included Umbro as, as the technical partner, Carlsberg, um, and Nationwide um, bought in, albeit in a different way to, to, the, to, the, to the previous sponsorship programme. And we had you know, five fantastic brands. And then we had a second tier of partners who were more suppliers like British Airways, Giorgio Armani, and a range of other partners who, who really sort of bought into the, uh, the whole idea. So I must admit, I had a few sleepless nights because the initial stages of selling that programme didn't go too well. I wasn't getting a lot of traction. I think a few people in the marketing world thought I was a bit crazy, and, and maybe I was at that time. Um, but I genuinely thought it was the right way to go. I just didn't like the idea of one brand owning the FA Cup. I didn't like it being called the AXA FA Cup. They're a great company to work with, but I didn't like the idea that one of English, English football's most prestigious uh, properties was was title sponsored and, and particularly not the national team. So, you know, the whole idea was that no one brand owned our two most important properties um, as, as the FA. And uh, eventually we got the thing sold. And it was one of those where you get the first deal done and then the second deal and then the others just thankfully drop into place soon after because there starts to be a bit of scarcity value and suddenly people don't want to miss out and they realize that the opportunities for them to buy into the program were were fast disappearing so we got it done we got it sold and, and that created a, a very nice revenue stream that the FA could then build on for a four-year period and uh, yeah it, it went very well. That's brilliant. But, uh, staying on uh, with the FA just for this before Dan moves on uh, the other major thing you were involved with back then was again something that that my company had an involvement with but there was a lot of um, the on the fans, it was the old England Members Club, wasn't it? Yeah. And it was there was worries about being very white, very southern centric, and there was reasons why it needed to change. But changing that to England fans was a really big deal, and you put that out to tender that whole project. Can you, from your perspective, can you tell us a bit about the England fans project? Yeah, it was, I mean, it was designed to, to create a more diverse fan base, first and foremost. It was designed to create a, a loyalty platform so that those fans that were committed to following the team uh, around the country uh, when we left Wembley to go on the road, but also more importantly around Europe when we, we took part in qualifying campaigns for the Euros and the World Cup, that they earned caps towards tickets for the big tournaments. And it was, you know, it was a combination really of a loyalty program and a recognition program. And, and, and Jimmy Worrell, who you'll know Phil very well, yeah. uh, was very much a, a key man on that. He was one of the marketing managers and commercial managers that worked for me. And, and um, Jim did a fantastic job in, in sort of pulling that whole thing together. And, you know, we pushed it through the FA board and the FA council. We got a bit of resistance early on from, from some fans, but eventually I think people recognised that it was a fair way to reward uh, England fans for, for their loyalty and also to earn caps towards getting tickets to major tournaments. And, and the whole programme still exists to this day and has evolved over the 20 years. Brilliant. And that, I suppose, is a, is, a, is a sign of how well it was put together. And as you know, it's gone through different iterations over that period and successive marketing and commercial directors have added to it and and changed it ever so slightly, but the, the fundamental fundamental principle that we worked on back then, and that all those companies you know pitched for, including yours, was 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 sound. And uh, you know we've we've managed to show over over time that it was a good program. I see. Well, that that is where I met Jimmy. 
Yeah. So Jimmy had just left the school, the school in Liverpool, the MBA. Yes, football. that's right. And, and well, Jimmy, Jimmy sort of almost sort of stalked me to get to get a job. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, he he was a very and is a very very good um, salesperson, a fantastic networker, a very persuasive communicator, a very very bright commercial brain. And a great guy to work around because he's got, as you know, a fantastic sense of humor. And, um, you know, it, it was it was one of those things where you bring Jimmy in to, to the organization, but you know that at some point in the future, he's going to be destined for, for bigger and better things. And yeah. all you can do in the time that you've got with him is to try and get as much of that talent out as, of him as you can, uh, knowing that he'll go on to make his, his millions as, as, as obviously he's done, which is fantastic to see. That's oh, well, awesome. Well, we, uh, by that time, my company had moved to Soho Square. We were at number seven. And when we pitched for that project, uh, Jimmy was leading it, but it was Hazel Roscoe that had asked him to put us on the pitch list. Yeah. But when we actually set the pitch up in Soho Square, we actually turfed our boardroom and we had the, meet, uh, the presentation in two different boardrooms. And the first half was strategy. And then the second half, we moved into a boardroom that was all turfed, yep. where we ran through the execution of how it would all end up. And it was just hilarious. It was just brilliant. brilliant. Yeah, and we, we ended up working with you. And there was one really kind gesture. You probably can't even remember it now, where it's something you did for us at the end of the project when it all went live, is you allowed us to have the top floor of the FA for a party. Yeah. And, and you had a big uh, open area there didn't we did, at the yeah. top. we did yeah and it was just like we we thought we died and gone to heaven <laughs> so we got to invite all our clients to come to the fa and just have a big party up top so oh it's fantastic we we're very proud of it uh phil and, and we we're very proud of, of of the way we were you know changing the direction of the fa i remember when i first joined in lancaster gate it was almost it was almost a criminal offense to admit that you supported a particular club you know, the, the sense was you had to sort of stay neutral if you were an FA executive. And I remember Adam Crozier and I sitting down when we got to Soho Square. And the first thing we did was, was to put five plasma TV screens in reception. And at that time, back in 2000, you know, plasma screens were not as common, anywhere near as common as they are now. And what we wanted to do is when people walked into that building, we wanted to showcase men's football, women's football, um, disabled football, youth football, and, you know, match officiating. And so when you walked in, you got a real sense of just how diverse FA responsibilities for the game were. Uh, and also we wanted to, to, to basically showcase the staff as being passionate football fans themselves. And so we produced our first ever annual report where we featured staff members and it would say, Paul Barber, marketing director, Tottenham Hotspur fan. Adam Crozier, chief executive, Celtic fan. Hazel Rusko, uh, marketing manager, Shrewsbury Town fan. And the idea was that we would show the audiences, our stakeholders that were important to us, that we love the game as much as them. And there was uproar from some FA council members um, who thought that we were basically showing bias towards Tottenham and Shrewsbury and all the other clubs that we'd featured. And, you know, we, we shook our heads slightly in disbelief to say, no, this isn't about bias. This is about passion for the game. This is about knowledge of the game, experience of the game at all levels, you know, because not everybody in the FA supported a Premier League club. You know, lots of people supported clubs like Hazel from the lower levels of the game all the way down to non-league football. A lot of those staff members were referees, coaches, grassroots coaches. Some of them were club secretaries. They had a ton of experience and we wanted to bring that out and, and show the football audiences that the people at the FA didn't just have a job at the FA. They really cared about the game. Paul, I'm really trying hard. I mean, it's a brilliant story, but I'm really trying hard not to make a comment about supporting Spurs. It should be illegal. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm sat there listening to what you're saying, saying, Dan, don't say it. Don't say it. Don't say it. <laughs> but there we go. I, I want to move on a little bit, Paul, because you've done so much in digital and in the area and in ex your experience with the FA, I think including creating the first ever website. What are some of sort of looking that, you know, future proof in that. What are some of the big changes in the game that you've seen that sort of led by digital? And I suppose, what do you see as some of the big opportunities, you know, for clubs, supporters, fans, as we move forward? I suppose, particularly post-COVID and the scenario that we're, that we're in now. I think the, the, the two big things really are profile and engagement. 
and and you know with the advent of the Premier League in '92, followed by Euro '96, fo followed followed closely really by the way the Premier League has evolved. You know the profile of the English game has just exploded in in a way that I think even the architects of the Premier League could never have actually imagined. And and with that, as the digital world has evolved, has been the need or the desire for fans to engage more. And clubs have had to respond to that. National associations had to respond to that. The leagues have had to respond to that by, you know, creating more and more sort of digital opportunities for fans to not only see the game, but also engage with the game. And, you know, I think websites were the early sort of forerunner of that profile uh, enhancement and engagement. Uh, since then, of course, you know, fans have, have developed their own message boards and chat rooms and, you know, YouTube has come along and fans have created their own content. Um, Arsenal TV, which I'm sure you're a regular watcher of. He's uh, the only one. He's the only one. <laughs> Me and Robbie. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, that whole that whole sort of explosion over the last of, well, really the 20, 25 years that I've, I've worked in football has been incredible. And, of course, Sky Sports have played a massive part in you know, building this sort of um, brand of, of, of entertainment, really. You know, sport has always been a, a branch of the entertainment industry. Football's always been the biggest part of that, that segment, if you like. And now it's bigger than ever. And with that exposure and that profile has come international interest. And that's why now the international rights for the, the, the Premier League uh, are, are so valuable, um, not just to the league itself, but to the clubs involved, because it also gives them a platform then to market their own brands to those big international audiences. So things have changed so much over the 20, 25 years and, and you know, largely, largely for the better. Obviously, we're always concerned about not alienating uh, people and not um, making ourselves too expensive for most people to be able to attend games. So we've, we've always got to maintain that balance between making sure that from a commercial point of view, we we maximise the opportunity that we've got through the profile and through the incredible engagement. But at the same time, not forget, you know, that the heart of our game are the people in cities and towns up and down the country that love their hometown club and want to go and watch them play live. And, you know, we, we must never forget that. And if we do, it will be ultimately to our, our massive detriment. That's brilliant. Paul, I just want to segue slightly, because obviously we spent a bit of time in the FA and we want to talk about your, your current roles, but want to touch briefly on your spell as the CEO of the Vancouver Whitecaps. Uh, tell us a little bit, how did that happen? How did that go? I mean, there's some incredible successes there as well, but give us a bit of insight into that. Well, it, it goes all the way back to um, probably the, the, the early, uh, sorry, late part of, of 2008-9 when um, we had a visit, I had a visit from a, a couple of guys who uh, were looking at that time to invest in, in, in a Premier League club. Tottenham was on their list. Um, and, you know, Tottenham were not for sale and, and Daniel Levy was not interested in, in selling all or, or even part of the club. Um, and these two guys said, well, that's fine. You know, no problem. We've had a great visit. We've enjoyed the tour of the stadium. And, you know, one of them turned out to be a big Spurs fan, a guy called Steve Nash, who's a famous NBA basketball player um, at that time was playing with the Phoenix Suns. And the other guy was Jeff Mallett, who was one of the co-founders of Yahoo. And, you know, these were two prominent guys um, both uh, born and bred around uh, Vancouver. And uh, they happened to mention in passing that, that they had also bought um, a share in the franchise for an MLS club, Vancouver Whitecaps. Anyway, we kept in touch and, and maybe about six, eight months later, they, they got back in touch and said, look, we'd really like a, a, a European uh, CEO to, to come and run the Whitecaps for us and, and take us into uh, MLS, you know, would you be interested? And, and I've got to be honest, I'd never been to Canada. I'd been to US many, many times, never been to Canada, never been to Vancouver. So I went over to meet them, really liked the city, loved what they were trying to do. They wanted to set the, uh, the Whitecaps up as a, a European structured club. So they had first team, effectively an under 23s team, an academy, stadium, training ground, very, very similar structure to what we would be used to in Europe. And um, the idea of living in one of the best cities in the world um, appealed to me, appealed to my family. And so we, we decided to take a deep breath and, and after five years at Tottenham, uh, make a big change. And uh, I enjoyed nearly three years there and um, moved the club into MLS. I think I was the, the first British football executive to, to take a club into MLS, which was a small peg on my own CV, which I, I sort of still very proud of. Um, and 
also gave my family an opportunity to have a very different lifestyle for a few years. And my son actually never came back. He's still there. He went to university oh, there and, and has stayed in Canada uh, ever since and um, oh. you know, has a great lifestyle there. So from that point of view, um, it was really it was really one of those opportunities that we felt might not ever come along again. And it came along at a time when our family was relatively mobile and we were able to, to do it. Um, I've got to be honest, I enjoyed it for the time I was there, but I always had this um, desire to, to, to work again in English football. My, my passion really was English football and I, I miss the um, I miss the whole uh, experience of being involved in the English game, if I'm honest, as much as I enjoyed uh, being an MLS. And someone once told me that when you start missing things about home more than you're enjoying about being wherever else it is you are, uh, that's the time when maybe it's it's time to, co to go back home. And that's, and that's what we did after three years. Are you enjoying our podcast? Remember to subscribe, share and leave us a review. They had some good nicknames for the clubs over there, didn't they, in Vancouver? The, the, the Prawn Ciders? Yes, yeah. Oh, well, they've, they've got different fan groups and, and, different, um, and different sort of sections of the stadium sort of carved themselves up into different groups. And, you know, the one thing I loved about being there, Phil, and the FA experience gave me probably a, a great grounding in this, was that my primary job in Vancouver was to sell the sport before the club. Because in, in Vancouver and in Canada as a whole, ice hockey is the number one sport. You then have quite a lot of interest in the other American sports. So baseball, basketball, particularly because Vancouver won, once upon a time had a, an, an NBA franchise called the Grizzlies and that got moved to Memphis. Um, they love American football, albeit they have their own version called the CFL rather than the NFL. And so you're competing with all of these different sports, um, football or soccer, as they would call it comes a distance sort of fourth or fifth. And so your first and primary job is to sell the sport, then to sell the club, then to differentiate the club from the other match day experiences that they could have. And the other biggest challenge was, frankly, you know, getting people to accept that watching the Whitecaps play in the MLS was better than going skiing on the mountain or sailing on the mm -hmm. Pacific Ocean where you can see the whales and the dolphins and, and everything else you can do in Vancouver. So it was a real true sales and marketing job from, from, from top to bottom, from day one of arriving to the very day that I left. And, you know, if you, if you love sales and you love marketing, you love building brands, it's a brilliant, brilliant environment in which to go and test yourself. And I, and I really enjoyed it. I, wow. I, read, I read that you set up 25 new commercial deals for them. In 24 what? months. Yeah. Yeah, we did. We did That's 25. amazing. We did 25 deals in 24 months, um, including the, the title sponsor for, for our shirt, as they would call it, the jersey sponsor, a whole range of, of really top brands. And again, I was really very, very lucky to be working with, with a great team there who knew their way around the North American sports sponsorship market. And we benefited, or I benefited hugely from the fact that Vancouver had hosted the 2010 Winter Olympics. And there were some really brilliant sports marketers that were on the Olympic bandwagon and wanted to step off it in Vancouver because it was such a great place to live. And that meant there was this massive pool of talent in Vancouver when I arrived there who just were looking for, for work in the sports marketing industry. And along comes this new franchise or this relatively new franchise who are moving into MLS. And so I had the pick of some fantastic talent that wow. in any other year, I, I, frankly, I might not have had access to because what happens with the Olympic bandwagon is that people stay on it for a long time until they get to a city that they quite fancy living in for the rest of their lives or for the next period of their lives. And then they jump off. And then of course they've got to find another job. Um, so, you know, I, I really was fortunate to, to, to meet and work with some great people from that uh, Olympic period. Brilliant. Can we just chat about the fan experience? Because you mentioned earlier on about the FA and changing their whole fan base, um, their plans, but you also did it with Tottenham Hotspur. You, created one hotspur and now you're with Brighton and I assume your head is in that same space. Can you tell us a little bit about that whole, the importance of the fan experience to the clubs you're involved in? Yeah. I mean, I think in North America, as, as most people know that, that match day is not just about the sport. It's, a, it's about everything around it as well. And, um, you know, I learned a lot again from, from colleagues in, in Vancouver about how to put on, a match day experience and and in England we tend to think about that as better hot dogs or colder beer or maybe a bit more legroom in the seats but over there it's 
music before the game. It's um, an opportunity to engage with players that maybe not in the starting lineup that day. It's an opportunity to take part in competitions, win merchandise. And it really is a great sort of top to bottom experience that maybe starts two or three hours before kickoff and goes on for two or three hours after kickoff. And that increased dwell time from a commercial point of view gives you an opportunity to frankly commercialize everything you do, improve your revenues, improve the spend per head. And it's something that in English football we had never done. And if we had tried to do it, you know, fans were not really sort of in the right mindset necessarily for, for that to happen. It wasn't something that they wanted. They were really only there for the game. So, you know, when I came back from Vancouver to Brighton, you know, there was an opportunity with a new stadium, a, a fan base that was still growing rapidly as the club progressed. To, to try and bring some of that experience from North America to Brighton, not to Americanize an English sport, but just simply to try and provide more value um, for the fans that were coming to the games. And because our stadium here in Brighton is outside of the city, we don't have lots of pubs and restaurants and, and cafes around the stadium. It was actually worth our while to create a, a longer dwell time in and around the stadium before and after the game because there really wasn't anything else for people to to go to so that that was something we worked on and, and i suppose the second part of that was actually getting to know the fans so getting data making sure that we knew who was coming to see us what their profile was whether there was an opportunity to for them to bring brothers sisters sons daughters wives, girlfriends, husbands, boyfriends, you know, just to expand the fan base from the people that we already knew was the most obvious target to go after. And then, of course, as the club's profile grew, we progressed from the championship to the Premier League. We were bringing the bigger teams to, to, to Brighton for, for us to play them in competition. Then, of course, fans come from everywhere because they, they want to be part of something that is growing and developing and, and changing. And uh, if you can combine a great experience around the match, with great performances on the field, reasonable prices, decent transport infrastructure, and a good way of engaging with fans. Be open, be transparent, be prepared to take a bit of criticism from time to time, be prepared to be a bit different, be prepared to, to, to stand up for what you believe is right. Fans aren't always right, very often they are, but not always. Um, then you can actually create something that has got sustainability and longevity. And that was our plan and has been and still is our plan at Brighton. And you've even got your own disco. <laughs> well, we've, we've had a few what we call North Stand disco. So we've got a few typical Brighton, you know, it's entertainment capital of the south of England. We've got a lot of um, budding DJs and, and, uh, and, and music uh, people amongst our fan base. So we do a couple of things. We in normal times, non-COVID times, we have fan discos on, on our North Concourse. And that's hosted by a couple of sort of DJs that have been in and around the Brighton scene for a while. And then we've also had a bandstand where we give local bands the chance to come and perform before the game. And, you know, we judge their success and their popularity by the number of people that stay and watch them. And if there's a lot of people, we invite them back. If not a lot of people watch them, we don't invite them back and we move <laughs> on to the next one. And the great thing about the music industry, a bit like, you know, the football industry in many ways, is that, you know, there's always a new act. There's always a new player in football. There's always a new young player. There's always a new band. There's always a new artist. There's always, there's always an opportunity to showcase new talent um, on and off the field. And, you know, we're trying to, we're trying to create, as I say, a, an experience that people will come to primarily for the football, primarily for their team to win. But on the days when we don't deliver on the field, people hopefully go away saying, you know what, I've had a great time anyway. I've enjoyed the entertainment. Mm. I've enjoyed meeting friends and family. The food and beer was good um, and the prices were reasonable and the club looks after me as best they can. Yeah, you know what, that's a, that's a great place to go back to. And this year, despite COVID and despite all of the pressures that people have been under financially, we've got the highest number of season tickets we've ever had in the club's history. Um, and, you know, we're now beginning to see people spending money again with the club that we haven't seen for 18 months, which is going to give us the best chance of, of recovering the losses that we incurred during the pandemic. Yeah, that, that must have really hit you hard, not having fans at the Amex. Really hard because, you know, we're, we're, not, we're not one of those huge clubs that generate tens of millions of pounds from commercial revenues through sponsorship overseas or, or from, you know, from, from, from other ventures. So for us, match day revenue, you know, despite all the things you read about, you know, the Premier League clubs not needing or worrying about match day revenue for a club of our size, 
it's still really important and it's still really valuable to us. And so to, to really not have fans here for 18 months has, has been financially punishing. And, you know, we're probably uh, adding to already significant losses by 30, 40 million pounds over this 18 month period. And, you know, that that has to come out of, of someone's pocket. In our case, it's our owner. Um, and that's a that's a heavy price to pay. So to have fans back in is really important. The challenge now is to keep them here, to keep them safe and hopefully, you know, a, a, avoid capacity restrictions or, God forbid, you know, behind closed doors games again, because, you know, none of us want to go back to that. Um, another passion and something you've dedicated time to is women's football. You're currently on the board for women in football. And I remember that whilst at the FA, you secured the first ever sponsorship of women's football. And that was two decades ago. So what, what opportunities do you see for the growth of the sport and for the brands who want to help inspire the next generation of girls? Well, first of all, I think it's the fastest um, part of our game in terms of growth, you know, fastest growth area. And therefore, we would all be foolish to ignore it. And, um, you know, that's just from a commercial point of view. From a moral point of view, it would be inexcusable to ignore it. And um, I've got two daughters. They both work in professional football, and I'm really proud of the fact that they, that they do. Um, and I see it, I suppose, as partly my... Um, fatherly responsibility, but but also a professional responsibility to make sure that where I can play a small part in making sure there are no barriers to, to women and girls progressing in the game, then I've got to take that responsibility. And, and, you know, I'm fortunate enough to be in a position where, you know, I can have a, a small bit of influence in that regard. But actually, you know, everywhere I look across the game now, you know, more and more clubs want to have a, a women and girls set up more and more clubs are, are doing great things to, to make sure that any barriers that do exist, not just on the field, but off the field are being removed. Um, women in football are doing a fantastic job in, in constantly challenging um, uh, organisations, clubs, individuals to make sure that women's football and girls football has an equal opportunity uh, across the sport. And as it progresses, I, I see it a little bit like, you know, women's tennis and, and women's golf, you know, they're the same sport as men's tennis and men's golf, but there are different attributes that come to, to play. If you watch women's tennis, it's the same game as men's tennis, but it tends to be different when you watch it you know, up, up close. There's a lot more technique. It's not as powerful in terms of the serving. There's a lot more agility around the court. There's a lot more movement from the baseline to the net. Women's golf, different again. You know, they don't hit the ball as far, but around the greens, there's some amazing play. And women's football is a bit like that. You know, you're not going to get the, the sort of, you know, six foot four centre half defending corners in the way that you see in the men's game. But you're going to see a lot of great technical skill, a lot of fantastic athletes. And it's the same game, but it's different. And to compare men's and women's football is, 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 is to me to miss the point. You know, they're both great branches of the same sport and you appreciate different aspects of them when you watch them on a regular basis. And, you know, I think that's the same in women's tennis, the same in women's golf, increasingly in women's rugby. And you, you, you see it, I think, increasingly in, in women's football. And, you know, we've now got some, some terrific matches in the Women's Super League that, that you can see, you know, on, on TV on a regular basis, which is great. You've got more and more uh, magazine type shows showcasing the game. You've got more and more women progressing off the field in, in terms of um, being chief executives of clubs, um, of running big departments within clubs of progressing within clubs. And I think that's great to see. It changes the narrative. It changes the focus. It gives us all um, a much, 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 much bigger market to work with and aim at. And that has to be good for the sport. Uh, before, before Dan asks his next question, I, want, I need to check two daughters and a son. Are they all Tottenham fans? Uh, no. Uh, my Yay. son and my oldest daughter are Tottenham fans. My youngest daughter is a Brighton fan. Uh, oh, that's that's acceptable. Yeah, and, and that's because she again, she's a good example, Phil, of why women in football is so important. You know, she she came back from Vancouver, not really a football fan, but the way we were doing things at Brighton and the way we've been doing things over the years captured her heart and mind. She became a football fan, went to university, and now works for a Premier League club. Not this one, but uh, a big one that we're red in the north, and you know, from, uh, <laughs> Liverpool. <laughs> Uh, yes, Liverpool. <laughs> um, but you know what? That's that. You know that's fantastic because you know ten years ago, um, you know she would not have considered football to be of interest or a career in football to even be anywhere near her 
top five you know things to do in her life and and now it's a massive part of her life she loves every minute of it she's working with a great club with great people and you know that's that for me is a fantastic um opportunity for any young girl who thinks that football is a closed shop and it's only for men and boys she's a great example of, of of why it isn't and how it can literally change the course and direction of your life once you get into it that's brilliant that's absolutely excellent Paul, just want to bring you into my world a little bit of sort of data and technology and that side of things, which, you know, you've already spoken about the role of data, you know, in terms of the fan experience. I suppose, you know, again, coming through the COVID period we've been in, looking at the opportunities, what are some of the big changes you foresee or some of the big opportunities you see in the next few years for regard with regards to how data sort of shapes the sport? Well, I think, I think data is going to be really important if we move as we expect to, to ultimately selling broadcast rights direct to consumer because right. knowing knowing who your fans are where they are um what what their what their propensity to pay for um direct to consumer offerings is you know data is going to be really important and of course at the moment um clubs have, have got two sort of sources if you like of, of fandom they've got those that come through the door and they know ticket holders season ticket holders corporate hospitality buyers and membership buyers and so on and then there's that massive audience that, that that are one removed because the broadcasters have the subscriptions and, and the, the data for those people and of course some of them cross over a lot of them cross over but but there's a lot of people out there that are fans of our club that we've never met we don't know that don't interact with us and it's a really careful balancing act because as i said earlier sky bt bbc itv have done fantastic jobs for us and so have all the broadcast partners that the premier league has around the world but increasingly, we know that, that the habits of, 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 of consumers are, are changing and that people might well want to buy direct from the clubs. And, and the EFL, um, the championship clubs particularly, have had some experience of this during COVID where they've been able to sell uh, direct to consumer on a regular basis. And of course, you know, as, as, as we move uh, forward in the next 10, 20 years, I'm sure that's going to be an, an even more important part of how football clubs sell um, to their fans and to fans they've, they've never met before. So I think data is, is going to be increasingly important. And, um, you know, from, from that point of view, clubs are becoming more and more sophisticated about how they collect it, uh, the staff they hire to collect it, to analyse it, to use it. Um, and, you know, this is creating even more jobs in, in the game. And, uh, you know, that, again, I think is a good thing, not a bad thing. How does that, I mean, that's great insight. How does that sort of look, in your opinion, in the sense of technology, you know, with digital ticketing, esports, you know, you know, how does data and technology, how do you see those things working together? Well, esports is another, uh, another area altogether, which boggles my mind. You know, if someone had said to me even 10 years ago that 30,000, 40,000 people would sit in a stadium watching two kids play football on a screen. Right. Um, <laughs> That, that, that I would have said they were crazy, but that happens. And in, in, in Asia, increasingly, you know, the crowds to watch esports competitors take part uh, in a stadium that was designed for live sports um, with the kind of crowd sizes and numbers they're getting and the commercial uh, traction that those events get. It's incredible. So esports, I think, is here to stay. And, you know, we, we've dabbled a little bit in it with our own sponsored players playing in competitions and around around the world. Some of these guys are earning now, you know, very, very good salaries from from competing in esports. So that's one area. I think, you know, in terms of, of where we go from here in, in, in terms of technology generally, I think people now just want to be able to watch live content however they want, whenever they want, through whatever device they, they have at, at their hands, and they're prepared within reason to pay for that. And we've got to work out a way to make sure that we provide the best possible experience for those people in the stadium, but also for this massive audience outside the stadium, we've got to make sure we don't forget them as well. And, you know, it's changing. The broadcasters are at the moment a big part of that. And I think they will be in the future as well, but it may be how we get the content to the consumer uh, that changes significantly. And, and as I say, direct to consumer is going to be one uh, aspect of that. But even then, you know, that these things have still got to be produced. They've still got to be distributed. And therefore, the broadcasters, the experts in this area are, are going to be part of our business for, for, for many years to come. I've got no doubt about that. Yeah, brilliant. Got a bit of a personal question for you now, Paul. Don't worry, it's not about Spurs. It's all, you know, <laughs> your reputation as someone who's not, you know, not afraid to try new things. You know, you're known for your honesty and you're quick to share news, whether it's good or bad. I suppose probably the marketer in you. But... 
What would you say has been your biggest biggest gamble, your biggest risk you've taken? Um, oh, that's a good question. I mean, I think I think when you're in the kind of jobs that we do, you're you're always trying new things, and and you know, to be honest, you probably, or certainly in my case, get more wrong than right. Actually, it's just that you don't talk so much about them <laughs> and get wrong, so no one really knows about them. But um, but I, yeah, I mean, we've done lots of different things here at the Amex. We've tried different sort of you know theme days around matches that were harder to sell ticket wise, and some of them have worked, and some of them haven't. Um, I think for me, the gamble of going to North America was was a personal career gamble that thankfully, you know, I think paid off for me in terms of, you know, my 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 own experience and knowledge and, and uh, life experience. Um, but I suppose I've been fortunate that I've never really touch wood made a, a terrible gamble that sort of massively rebounded. I think everyone makes mistakes. And I think one of the, the challenges and, and um, the, the best things about that is that if you can learn from them, it actually increases your knowledge rapidly and gives you more confidence because if you can recover from a mistake and learn from it and share that that learning with other people it's actually making you and your organization better in the longer run um, and you know we try and have a policy here of where you know mistakes are forgiven um, and you know provided we learn from them then they're you know they're very rarely fatal and I think it's a good philosophy because if you're not prepared to to, to make mistakes, then people will never try things and they'll never try different things. And I think that would be a real, um, that would be a real limitation in terms of our creativity and our, and our, uh, and our ability to do things differently. So, yeah, I mean, I think always try things and always be prepared to accept mistakes are part of that process, learn from them, hopefully never make the same one twice and it's all good. Brilliant. So next year you're going to be celebrating your 10th anniversary at Brighton and Old Albion. So did you ever imagine that you'd be there that long? Because uh, one question. And what have you been most proud of over what can only be described as a pretty historical decade for the Seagulls? Yeah, honestly, no, is the answer to the first question. I, I, I genuinely didn't, partly because I'd never been anywhere this long in my entire career. I've always been one of those people that feels that after three, four, five years, you know, you go in to do a particular job, you, you, you do it and hopefully do it well. And then, then another opportunity opens up here. It's been different because every year has been different to the last significantly. And, you know, for the first three or four years, it was about doing everything we could to, to prepare the club to get to the Premier League and then get promotion. And then for the immediate two years after that, it was about having got promotion, staying in the Premier League, and then in the two years since those first two years of staying in the Premier League, it's about how can we move away from the bottom four, five, six clubs and try and establish ourselves in our vision as a, as a top 10 Premier League club on a, on a regular basis. And that is so hard to do, partly because lots of other clubs want that same thing and partly because we're a club of a certain size. We're, we're having to be smarter in the way we recruit players and the, and the way we reward players um, and retain players. And that's difficult because... By definition, the more successful you are, it means the players you've got are performing well. And if they're performing well, they're going to come to the attention of the bigger clubs and then eventually you lose them. And then you have to start the whole cycle again. So I'm really proud of, of, of getting to the Premier League. I'm really proud of the fact that we've got our fan base to the, the level we're now at. We've got a stadium of 32,000 that we're selling out regularly. Um, we've got the season ticket numbers at the highest level in the club's entire 120-year uh, history. Um, so yeah, lot, lots of things to be proud of. But the great thing about a football club is that there's lots of people that have have have, have created that success. It's not just about the chief executive or, or the chairman. There are so many people in this club that have worked really hard over the last decade to get us to this position. And we're not done yet. That's the exciting thing. You know, we've still got a lot more that we we, we want to do. And every week is 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 a challenge. You know, even winning last week at Brentford, you know, was a big a big thing for us. It was the first time that we'd moved to nine points in just four games in the Premier League. This time last year, it took us until January to get three wins. So that in itself, it, it may seem like a small thing winning away um, to, to a newly promoted club like Brentford. But actually for us, it was another step on that journey to becoming a more established club in, in the league. And there's so many stories about clubs that think they're established and then get relegated that we're not arrogant or complacent enough to think that even if we were to finish uh, in the middle of the table this year, that that's us done. We, that's the first season in what we have to assume and work hard towards is going to be many before people say they're an established club. But even now, we're in our fifth season in the Premier League. That's the 
most consecutive numbers of seasons in the top flight for this club in its history. So that in itself was another record that we set. And as I said before, each year that goes by here is different to the last. And I think that's what's kept me here for, for, for nearly 10 years. It's been an incredible journey. Paul, remind me how many places you are above Arsenal. <laughs> There's moment, no need for that. Oh, no. I, I, you know what? The one, the one thing I've learned, Phil, in 25 years in football is, is, is pride becomes usually comes before a very significant fall. So I'm not going to get carried away. Yeah. By that one. But, um, but I'm sorry, no, da- sorry, Dan. It's, it's a tough yeah. league. I'm sure Arsenal and, and all their fans will not be enjoying the start of the season. But, you know, it's a big club with a great history. And, and you know, they, I'm sure, will be will be fighting hard to, you know, to get themselves back where they think they, they belong. As Spurs fan, of course, you know, I don't <laughs> those we'll move uh, on, shall we? I have, I have one last question for you before Dan rounds up. And it's really about the owner of the club because you've been there 10 years, which you weren't expecting yourself. It's a long time. So um, what, what type of owner is he? Is he very hands-on? Is one word fantastic i mean we, we you know tony bloom is a is a, a local local man um born in the city educated in the city self-made um extremely successful businessman loves the football club as much as he loves his family um and you know this is the this is the sort of the pride and joy in in, in his life outside of his family for sure and um He's very hands-off in the sense that, you know, he, he employs me to run the club day to day and, and he's involved as much as I need him to be or want him to be. Having said that, he attends as many games as he can, home, home and away. He's always around for board meetings. He's always at the end of the phone if, if you need help or support or advice. I mean, to be honest, Phil, there are very few, in my opinion, owners like, like Tony Bloom in, in football these days who have that fantastic balance of, of loving the club because they've supported the club since he was a small boy and his family have got an association on the board of the club for, for nearly half a century, albeit not owning the club all that time. But at the same time, someone who's committed now over 400 million pounds of his own money to building the infrastructure that we use every day, wow. the stadium, the training ground, the accumulated losses to help us get to the Premier League and to stay in the Premier League. And yet, actually, when all said and done, what he really is, is a fan. And he just oh. loves match day watching the football. And I think the stadium could be burning down around us. And Tony would say, Paul, that's your problem. There's a game on. I've got to finish watching the game. And <laughs> he's, he is as totally focused as a fan on the football. And everything that goes around the club on a match day really is, is our responsibility to, to, to take care of. And actually, that's, for me, the best combination. You know, the owner is the owner. He's a fan. He loves his football. That's his prerogative to to stay focused on being a fan and and it's our job to to take the pressure of running the club away from him and that's what we try and do what's the chances of getting him along as your guests to sports podge oh well it's never impossible um as you can imagine his diary is pretty pretty hectic but i'll do my best he's a great character to be around you would throw that in there wouldn't you phil oh well paul (laughs) paul is apart from being one of the longest serving regulars at sports pod yeah, is also really generous on the on the dates he couldn't make it as asked me to put his money towards getting a charity involved you know giving the ticket to someone that couldn't afford to be there and i just oh, think that talks about your character so over to you dan brilliant final question paul we'll let you go we've grilled you enough but just before the final question just remember my brother-in-law is a mad seagulls fan and actually he's moved to chile so would you just give him a yeah? So he doesn't get to watch watch him anymore. But would you give him a quick shout out? His name's Matt Pope. Matt, uh, thank you for your long term and uh, long distance support. Now that's fantastic to hear. You can watch us, I'm sure, on uh, Chilean TV. I'm sure they've got the Premier League down there. In fact, I know they have. So uh, hopefully, we'll get a result for you this Sunday against Leicester. We'll dedicate it to you if we do. That's awesome. Thanks so much, Paul. And then last question. As an agency, we're all about making complex things wonderfully simple. So what's one of life's complexities you like? Well, this is going to probably make me sound very stupid, but I really struggle with those machines that you see on the side of a road when you have to park your car 
and you have to work out the time, the credit yes. card. I mean, <laughs> yeah. why is that so complicated? You know, how can you how can you go to a cash machine in the wall and and, and tap in four numbers and and you know pay direct debits and sort out bills and take cash out? But when you want to pay for something as simple as half an hour, an hour's parking, it point. takes you fifteen yeah. minutes to to work out how to use the machine. So for me, that is my pet hate. I really think that there must be someone out there that can make pay and display parking machines simpler than they are. That's great, a great. great answer. That is a great way to finish the time together. Brilliant. Brilliant. Thank you very much, Paul. That's really good. Um, giving up that time. And we've really enjoyed that. It's brilliant. Great Pleasure. interview. No, no problem at all. Great to speak to you. And uh, good luck for the, the rest of the season. And uh, hopefully uh, we, we'll still be in the Premier League and Arsenal will still be recovering from the start. <laughs> um, and Manchester United and Manchester City give the rest of us a chance this season. That'll be oh, great. Oh, goodness. I know. Yeah, and uh, yeah, good luck with parking your car in Brighton. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> Brighton City Council hate cars, so they, they've got no incentive whatsoever to make it easier for, for me or any of us to park our cars. So, um, yeah, that's not that's not probably a good advert, Phil. But anyway, we'll <laughs> yeah, good luck against Leicester. Yeah, good luck on Sunday. Catch up soon. Thanks a lot, guys. Cheers. Cheers, Paul. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. tuning in to the Wonderful People podcast. This podcast was brought to you by Wonderful Creative Agency. Find out more at thewonderful.co.uk.